0: Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. More information about First Baptist Church can be found at www.fbcalamo.com. All right, well, the kids are heading back to the fellowship hall with Miss Rhonda. And as they do so, let me encourage you to take your Bible and go to Genesis chapter 50. Okay, that's 5-0, chapter 50. Now, this morning, we're wrapping up Uh, The the book of Genesis, this story that that we've called Characters in Chaos for the past 14, 15 weeks or so. And and this morning we come to uh, the the last figure in the book of Genesis, Uh, Joseph, whose life span and life story covers the last 13 chapters, from from chapter 37 through chapter 50. And so that's going to be the overview of where we go. Now, I'm not going to make you flip back and forth through there, okay? We're going we're to read a, a bit of that, and then I'll spend some time recapping Joseph's life, and then we'll wrap up um, with principles that we can learn from the life of Joseph. And, and I think you'll, you'll see this ties well into Thanksgiving, and then as we move into Advent next Sunday... Um, we will we'll really jump right from Genesis into Christmas, and and I think you'll see the way that all this connects. At least that's that's my hope. So as you're turning there, let me let me just recap everything that we've done so far. We looked at creation uh, the first week. We we saw that God's the author of creation, and as the author, He gets to set the rules. We saw that He created everything good, and we saw in in Adam and Eve that. We learned about God's plan for our relationship with him, our relationship with one another. God's plan for marriage, how, how husband and wife are supposed to live, live with one another. And, and we saw that God's plan was that we would live without strife in our lives, without conflict between husband and wife or conflict with one another. We would live in perfect relationship with God. We, we, we see that laid out in Genesis 1 and 2, and what a beautiful picture it is. And then comes Genesis 3 and the fall where... Where Adam and Eve choose their own way instead of the way that God's given them, and uh, that causes that that sin that them choosing their own way uh, breaks God's creation, fundamentally fractures the the relationships that they're to have with with one another, where they immediately start blaming each other for for this sin that's come into their lives. And, and as I think we, we see in our world today, that, that blaming hasn't really stopped, right? Like we, we still, if we're caught in something, we our, I think our first inclination is to begin pointing fingers about why what we did is not really our fault. And certainly we see that in um, in, in the world around us. But what we see throughout Genesis is even as Things maybe devolve because of sin and, and, and strife that have entered into the world. God continues working. God does not give up simply because things went wrong. He keeps working in and through people's lives. And he keeps working in and through people's lives that are terribly messed up. We saw that through... Certainly Adam and Eve, we saw it uh, in the life of Noah, we saw it in um, in, in the life, uh, in the, the people at Babel, and we've certainly seen it in, in the last three figures that we've looked at, in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we'll see it today in the story of Joseph as well. God works in and through imperfect people to accomplish His purposes, so let's um, Let's stand and we'll read uh, Genesis chapter 50 verses 15 through 21. Where the Lord says this, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, "If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him." So they sent this message to Joseph, "Before you die, before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brothers' transgressions and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the life of Joseph. And I pray that that even though maybe this is a story that we've heard many times over, That we would approach it this morning with fresh eyes. That we might see how you work in and through imperfect circumstances to accomplish your purposes. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you can have a seat. Now here's, so I've kind of come up with a a sentence that will summarize everything that we're going to look at. And it's simply this, right? Despite the difficulties of life, God is still at work in and through us to accomplish his purposes for the sake of his glory and his kingdom, despite the difficulties of life. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the reality of the difficulties of life. God is still at work in and through us to accomplish his purposes for the sake of his glory and his kingdom, and we see this maybe in at least in the Old Testament. I can't think of any clearer passage where God is at work despite circumstances than in the life of Joseph. Uh, now, now we're introduced to Joseph in chapter thirty-seven, and really, Joseph is presented to us as a bratty younger brother. Okay, if you're an older sibling here, you know what that's like, right? If, if you're looking at your family and wondering who the bratty kid is, it's you. Okay, If you can't pinpoint it, you're the one. Right? Joseph is the bratty younger brother. We're told in Scripture that he is his father's favorite. Now, if you remember, um, Jacob has already had some experience with what it's like, uh, with, with, with the difficulties that favoritism causes, and yet, apparently, he didn't learn all of that. Because he, he has this favorite child, Joseph, and apparently he made it known that Joseph was his favorite child. So, so another um, uh, uh, another tip, parents, if you have a favorite child, don't tell the other one, okay? Like, don't make it known. So Jacob had apparently made this known, and Joseph knew that he was his father's favorite. And so do the other brothers, and they come to despise him because of that. Jacob even goes so far as to make Joseph this beautiful coat of many colors, right? Maybe through through popular culture, we know it as Joseph in the amazing technicolor dream coat, right? This this gorgeous robe that that Jacob made for his favorite son that Joseph liked to wear and show off and, and let his brothers know. Look, look at what dad did for his favorite child. Well, in the course of time, jo- Joseph has this dream where all of his brothers bow down to him. Okay? And then he tells them about this dream. Again, if you ever have a dream where your brothers and sisters bow down to you, you should not tell them about it. Okay? Joseph, again, he knows he's the favorite, so he tells them, hey, guys, I had this awesome dream. You're not going to believe it. Uh, we were out there and all, all, of, uh, all of you guys ended up bowing down to me. Isn't that awesome? It's so cool. They, they finally get sick of it. One day, uh, all of Jacob's other sons are out in the field, working the field. And Jacob sends Joseph out to go find his brother's. When they see him coming, and see him, see him coming from a distance, when they see him coming, that they, they hatch this plan to kill him. You, you should not kill your brothers and sisters, okay? Let's, let's get that out of the way. They, they, they hatch this plan. Here comes that dreamer, they said. We can't stand him. He makes our lives miserable. Let's just kill him. Put it to a vote. All in favor, say aye. 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 And then, then Reuben speaks up, so, so out of the other 11 brothers, there's one who speaks up and says, you know, maybe killing him is just a bit drastic. Maybe we're going too far. So instead, let's just throw him into this pit. And then we're told that Reuben actually planned to come and rescue him later, right? So this is his way of saving his brother. So, so Joseph has at least one brother who, if, if he doesn't like him, at least he says, you know... Maybe killing him is a little too far. Uh, so they, they, they hatch this plan. Let's, all, let's throw him into this pit, okay? All right, all in favor, say aye. Aye, okay, good. Throw him into the pit. So Joseph reaches them. They, they take off his robe. They throw him into a pit. And then they sat down to eat. What, what, what strikes me here is that there's like a complete lack of regard for what they just did. They strip this robe off their brother, throw him in the pit, and then they sit down and and eat. They have a party. Before long, we're we're told a caravan of Midianites came along. So Judah, we know that name because through the line of Judah comes this guy named Jesus. We'll, We'll talk a lot more about that in the next four weeks. Judah... Gets a brilliant idea. What if we sold him? Then we accomplish two purposes. We, we get rid of him, and we make a little bit of money off of him. It's a great idea. Hey, guys, let's sell Joseph. All in favor, aye, aye, great, it's done. They sell him to this caravan of Midianites. And then they take his robe, they take this coat, they slaughter a goat, they dip Joseph's robe in it, and they take it back to their father. Say, Father, examine this. Is, this. is this your son's robe? Because we found it. Looks like he's been slaughtered by a wild beast. And in their minds, the book closes on Joseph, and they never have to deal with him again. We'll get back to them in a minute. This is what the Bible says though genesis thirty nine two the Lord was with Joseph. the Lord was with the bratty younger brother who has now been sold becomes a slave to Midianites. Well, Midianites eventually sell Joseph to a man named Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh's guards now now so so Potiphar's a powerful man in the house of Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth at this time. We're told that Joseph gained favor with Potiphar, who who eventually puts Joseph in charge of his whole household. Now, now, apparently, Joseph was also a pretty good-looking young man, and we're told that after a while, Potiphar's wife took notice of him. In fact, we're told that she approached him often to come and sleep with her, but Joseph refused out of the fear of God and out of respect for the man whom he worked for, for Potiphar. One day, Joseph's going about his work, and we're told that Potiphar's wife catches him alone. She grabs him and says, come sleep with me, and he flees. He runs away. He he does the honorable thing. In the meantime, he leaves his cloak. In such a rush to get out, leaves leaves her standing there holding her cloak, and she realizes that she could be in trouble unless she brings an accusation against Joseph. So Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of assaulting her, and Joseph is thrown into prison. We're told where Pharaoh's prisoners were held. So things in Joseph's life go from bad to worse through no fault of his own that we can see in Scripture. Him actually doing an honorable thing and yet maybe as you've learned at times in life, no good deed goes unpunished. And Joseph finds himself in a dungeon, maybe in another pit. At the beginning of 39, when when Joseph was sold into slavery, we were told the Lord was with Joseph. And at the end of chapter 39, we we're told this, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. The Lord knew exactly where Joseph was, even if Joseph didn't necessarily believe that at, at times. Well, it just so happens Joseph finds himself in prison with Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, the the man whose job it was to, um, to test Pharaoh's food to see if it was poisonous. And if, if, if he ate it and he didn't die, then the, then the food was passed on to, to Pharaoh and it was okay to eat. He's in, he finds himself in prison with, with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And while they, they do something, we're not told what, just that they offended Pharaoh. So he threw them into prison. And while in prison, both the cupbearer and the baker have dreams. And They wake up and they're 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 concerned. They have no idea what what the meaning of the dreams is. So Joseph, through God's guidance, is able to interpret their dreams. and And the interpretation Joseph says is this: to the cupbearer, he says, uh, "For you, I have good news. Uh, Pharaoh is going to restore you to your position. He's going to he's going to lift up your head and restore you to the position you had." To the baker, he says. Uh, Pharaoh's also going to lift up your head. Unfortunately, that's lifting it up off of your body, and you're going to be hanged. Both of those things happen exactly the way that Joseph said. And, and as the cupbearer is getting ready to go back into Pharaoh's palace, Joseph says, Please remember me when you're restored. Please tell Pharaoh about me. The cupbearer promises that he will, but he doesn't. And two years later, now, now think about that for a second, two years. Two years pass, and then Pharaoh has two dreams in a single night that disturb him. And so he calls all of his magicians, he calls all of his wise men to interpret this dream, and this is what the dream was. In the first dream, he dreams that seven healthy, well-fed cows came up from the Nile River and start grazing among the weeds, among the grass that's right there by the Nile. And then seven sick, thin cows come up and they eat the seven healthy cows. And yet, it says that you you couldn't tell looking at these cows that they just ate a big meal. They still look sick. He wakes up, wonders to himself, what on earth just happened? Then he falls asleep and he has another dream. And in the second dream, there are seven heads of grain that are are plump and that are good. They, They come up on a stalk. And then seven heads of grain that are thin and we're told they look like they're scorched by the wind come up and they swallow up the seven healthy heads of grain. And at this point, Pharaoh wakes up and is bothered, distressed. So he calls, again, he calls all his magicians, all his wise men to come interpret the dreams, but no one can. And at this point, the cupbearer remembers his dream two years earlier. And he comes to Pharaoh and says, please, please forgive me. Um, I I was supposed to bring this up to you a long time ago, but, but there's a man in your dungeon who interpreted this dream that I had and that the baker had, and everything that he said came true maybe, just maybe, this guy in your prison, in your dungeon can interpret your dream. So Pharaoh calls him. Joseph's brought before Pharaoh to interpret the dream, and, and it's interesting, Joseph very quickly points out, he says, I cannot give the interpretation, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, now think about maybe the temptation that Joseph has in this moment, because I mean, there's a lot riding on whether or not he, he makes Pharaoh happy in this moment. So maybe you would be tempted, I know I would be tempted to say, yes, I can give you an interpretation. And yet Joseph is quick to say, I I can't do it, but the God whom I serve can. So Pharaoh explains his dreams to Joseph. The Lord reveals to Joseph what he's about to do, and he says that the two dreams actually mean the same thing, and that God is informing Pharaoh about what he's, going to do and that's this we're told in in chapter 41 seven years of great abundance are coming through the land of egypt after them seven years of famine will take place and all the abundance of the land of egypt will be forgotten that's a bad famine if it makes you forget the good years you know i i grew up around farmers my dad was a cotton farmer and and there were a lot of good years and there were a lot of bad years but there was never a bad year that made you forget the good years In fact, every year, like in May, when when cotton farmers start planting, I mean, you might have had like four or five bad years in a row, but they're always remembering that one. Remember remember that year? That's what we're going to have this year. Hope springs eternal. In this case, uh, Joseph's going to say, those seven years of famine are going to be so bad that we're going to forget all about the seven good years, the seven years of abundance. The famine will devastate the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows it, for the famine will be very severe. And he says, since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God, and he will soon carry it out. So everybody's looking around, okay, so this is what's about to happen, what do we do? And and Pharaoh looks at Joseph and says, Joseph, what should we do? You're the one who interpreted this dream, you know what's going to happen, what should we do? So, so Joseph suggests this plan, and here's the plan. Well, during the seven good years, why don't we store up? Let's not, let's not uh, waste it. Let's, let's store it so that we have food during the seven years of famine. Let's be good stewards of what we have so that when, when those lean years come, we're able to survive, we're able to withstand it. Joseph's more or less declared a genius. And Pharaoh says, that's a a great plan. Joseph, you're in charge of it. You ever done one of those? You had this idea? Well, we could do this. Awesome. Run with it. That's yours. So Joseph goes from being in prison to being Pharaoh's right-hand man to implement this plan to save the land of Egypt. Sure enough, the seven years of abundance came, and they were good. And after that, the seven years of famine hit, and they were bad. Now back home, Joseph's father and brothers were feeling the effects of this famine. So it was not just Egypt, it was spreading out. That's how severe it was. And somehow they get worried that there's grain in Egypt, so, so Jacob sends his sons to go buy grain in order for them to survive. When they arrive in Egypt, Joseph recognizes him, but they don't recognize him. There's probably a lot of reasons for that. For one, he was a—he may have been a very young man when they sent him to Egypt. For two, they're probably not expecting their younger brother, whom they sold 20 years earlier, to be in Pharaoh's palace. The point is, they don't, they don't recognize him. He, he recognizes them. He knows who they are. So he treats them like foreigners, and he speaks harshly to them. And, and on some level, he's probably getting some Uh, some sort of affirmation from this, right? I'm able to treat my brothers the way they treated me. That feels good. Able to get a little bit of revenge on them. So he accuses them of being spies, tells them to go back and bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, the youngest child of Rachel. Remember, Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife who died in childbirth while she was giving birth to Benjamin. Benjamin. Benjamin's special to Jacob. There's a reason he sends his other sons and not Benjamin. He still has a favorite child. Now, Reuben, remember Reuben tried to save Joseph. Suddenly, in his mind, he thinks we're being punished for the way we treated Joseph years earlier, not not knowing that Joseph is the one who's toying with them at this point. Joseph takes Simeon, one of his brothers, binds him, th- throws him in prison and tells the others to go home and bring back their, young- their youngest brother. They go home. They're explaining to Jacob what's happened and initially Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go and after they're pleading, that he's, he's already got Simeon. He, we, we've got to do this. In order to save your son, we've got we've to take Benjamin. He reluctantly agrees. Well, Joseph gives them another test, and he threatens to enslave Benjamin. The, the, the brothers plead for their life of their youngest brother. Apparently, in the way they, they plead for the life of their youngest brother, the, their son's favorite child now, this, this shows Joseph that, that they've had a change of heart in the last 20 years. In chapter 45, Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers. Now, as you might imagine, they're horrified because they they realize, wait a second, this is the guy who we treated so bad 20 years ago, and now he's in power to do whatever he wants with us. He's Pharaoh's right-hand man. If he tells Pharaoh he wants us dead, that will be done. They're completely at the mercy of their brother they threw in a pit and sold into slavery. But we're told that Joseph is overjoyed to finally have his family back and that he kisses each one of them. He sends the brothers home to bring his father back. Imagine how that conversation goes. Walking back home, how, how do we... How, how do we break this news to dad? You know how we told you Joseph was dead? Well, we, it's, not, it's not entirely accurate. Jacob and his entire family, which we're told at this point is 70 people, make the trip to Egypt. Where Pharaoh greets them, and where Pharaoh gives them the best of the land. Now all is well, or at least it seems that way, until Jacob passes away and suddenly Joseph's brothers begin to worry, what if Joseph was just putting on a good face for our father and now our father's gone, he can, he can take his revenge on us however he wants what if everything that he's done for us is not genuine, but was just to appease our father? So, so they actually come up with this lie, and, and they, they go to Joseph in the passage that we read at the beginning in chapter 15. It said, when Joseph's bro- brothers saw that their father was dead, chapter 50, verse 15, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. They're so worried that they actually, as far as we can tell, concoct this lie to tell Joseph about their father's last request. Joseph, your father's dying request was that you forgive us. When Joseph heard it, at the end of verse 17, we're told he wept. His brothers came to him, bowed down before him and said, we are your slaves. Because they don't know what Joseph knows. They haven't experienced what Joseph has experienced. And that's why in verse 19, this is what Joseph says to his brothers. And this is maybe one of the most remarkable verses of seeing the big picture of what God's doing in the entire Bible. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. See, Joseph came to realize how God had moved in his life and how God had accomplished his purposes through Joseph's life. Now, I don't want to make Joseph this superhuman character because I have no doubt that there were times where he was tempted to be bitter with his brothers who sold him or to be bitter with Potiphar's wife who slandered him or to be bitter with the cupbearer who spurned him, who just forgot all about him there in prison. But through that all, he had faith in the God who saved him. And he saw how he was being used to accomplish God's purposes. Despite his circumstances, God was working in and through Joseph's life to save his brothers, to save his own family, along with millions of other people. You planned evil against me. God planned it. For good. Pastor and, and, and Bible teacher Tony Evans um, put it this way. He, he says it's important to note the order evil, God, good. He said, when we experience unjust evil, which, which exists in our life, in our world, there is evil. There is unjust evil. And, and, and we experience that. So when we experience unjust evil, we must look for God who is able to bring about incredible good. One of the most abused verses in all of Scripture is probably Romans 8.28. And yet, Paul's writing this to to followers of Christ who have experienced trouble. And I think this, this passage applies to the life of Joseph. Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Now, like I said, sometimes we, we take this out of context. And I think we try to force it into, into places that it doesn't work. But is this not a description of, of the life of Joseph? Who experienced evil? Some of it brought on by his own sin, right? I mean, if he if he had not treated his brothers with such contempt, they would not have sold him. That doesn't excuse their actions. But through that all... God was working it together for good according to his purpose that Joseph could have never seen 20 years before as he's being sold by his brothers into slavery. There, there's another time where God used. Immense human evil to accomplish his good purposes. Peter, during his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, tells his listeners this. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Was Jesus subjected to human evil? Absolutely. And yet God used that. According to his purposes, to save, I believe, even some of the men who crucified Jesus were killing the Son of God who was dying in their place in that moment. Don't underestimate the power of God working in and through circumstances that you don't understand. Trust that God's not giving up on you. Whether you're in the palace or you're in the pit, don't give up. Keep trusting. So as a wrap up here, here are three things that we learned from Joseph's life. They're simple, but they're important for us. First of all, here, here's, here's the first principle we learned from Joseph's life, right? Life is hard. Right? It is. Now, now, maybe, hopefully, you don't face the same struggles as Joseph, right? I sure hope you don't. I hope that you're not sold into slavery by your family. But regardless of what circumstances you face in life, that does not exclude the fact that, that we are going to face some kind of struggles. And this is, the, this is universal. Everyone experiences this. I've had lots of conversations with, with believers, with atheists, with, with folks that aren't really sure where they fit on that continuum. And you know what? I've never met anybody who says, I don't think there's anything wrong with life at all. I, th- I think everything in our world's going perfectly. All right, listen, life is hard. That's a reality. But don't miss this fact. Don't don't let, don't let this first one cloud the second one. That is that God is good. Yes, life is hard. But God is good. And the fact that life is hard does not change this fact. And the story of the Bible over and over and over again repeats that God is good in spite of the fact that life is hard. You won't find anybody in the Bible that never experienced trials. that never had struggles of some sort. And yet the the pattern, the, the overarching story of the Bible is that God works in and through the mess to accomplish his purposes. So life is hard. God is good, and God works powerfully even through the difficulties of life. Now, here's the kicker. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. I know I have in mine. Oftentimes, we don't see what God is doing until it's in our rearview mirror. Have you experienced that? Man, when you're in the middle of, of pain and suffering, maybe at times, like I think Joseph did, you're probably wondering, has God forgotten all about me? Does, does he know I'm here? Because I was told that his plans are to prosper me back in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, 11, right? I mean, I had that on my t-shirt, on my coffee mug, on like my graduation bookmark. Like, did he forget that? No, it's... Oftentimes when we get through the struggle, we look back, we see God at work in ways that we couldn't even imagine. So I would beg and I would plead with you, don't put blinders on in the middle of the pain. That doesn't make it easy. That doesn't mean that it's easy to trust God when when we don't see him working actively. We keep praying. We keep struggling. We keep relying on his strength. Trusting that one day, like Joseph, we're going to look back and see the way that God has orchestrated his plans in our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. So that brings us right back to where we started, the the big point for for the day. Despite the difficulties of life, God is still at work in us. He's at work in you. He's at work in me to accomplish his purposes for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his kingdom. This is what I mean when, when I said earlier that this week we need to take some time to pause and give thanks for the blessings of God. Because because these are things I don't think we realize when we're involved in the busyness of life, right? I mean, when, when, when deadlines are coming and, 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 and Monday hits harder than ever, and then you have four more Mondays right after it, if you've ever experienced a week like that. It's easy to get bogged down in the stuff of life and not pause and, and see how God's at work in us to accomplish his purposes. And that's why well, I'm so grateful for times like Thanksgiving and Christmas that cause us to pause. To take stock of what God has done in our lives and to give thanks for that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are a good God, a God who is gracious to us far beyond what we deserve. I thank you that you work powerfully through the difficulties in life. I don't know where everyone is in in this room this morning, but I know that you do. I know that you know intimately each of our circumstances. Maybe there are folks right now that that are struggling, just hanging on to faith by a thread. Maybe there are men and women in this room who are praying desperately for husbands, wives, children, parents to come to faith in you. And, and despite years of fervent prayer and pleading, there, there hasn't, been any, hasn't been any change of heart. Will you, will you give us the strength to persevere? As we prepare to cross over into a new decade, maybe, maybe the last 10 years have been the best we could have imagined, maybe they've been some of the, the worst imaginable. Regardless of where we find ourselves, will you remind us of your goodness over and over, of your faithfulness to us? And that even through difficulties, the hard days, You're chiseling us into the image of Jesus. In those days where we're struggling just to breathe, just to keep our head above water, will you help us cling to the promise that you have not abandoned us and that we are your workmanship Hold tightly to the hope that one day, one day when we look back, we'll see how you were working in and through us and around us for your glory, for the sake of your kingdom. Don't let us overlook all this this week. Through all the craziness that this week brings and, and the, the season of busyness that this week begins. Help us to not just focus on the friends and the family as, as good as those are. On the football, on the, the pumpkin pie and the turkey. Don't let us lose sight of your goodness for all that. I pray you'd call, call us just to Pause. take stock of our own lives, to take stock of how far you've brought us, that we might cry out with thanksgiving for who you are, for what you've done for us in sending Christ Jesus to be our Savior. We thank you for him. We ask all these things in his mighty name. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. We are located at 1100 Michigan Avenue in Alamogordo, New Mexico. We meet on Sundays for small groups at 9 a.m. and worship at 1030. If you have more questions, please email office at fbcalamo.com or call 575-437-5510. Thank you for listening and may God bless you this week.